This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. I want to thank everyone who tunes in and spends a little time with us here today and also around the world and keep your emails coming. Thank you to the publicists and the publishers, the managers, the people that reach out. Thank you. And these great guests. I'm holding the most wonderful book. And now it's a tough topic, but I just love the writing and high, and I highly recommend it. Obviously, there's going to be a link on the episode page. I've been waiting for someone to write about this and to write well about it. And my wish was granted. It's called A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World, Tales of Fire, Wind, and Water. It's written by the great David Gessner, and I'm just so honored to finally have him on and welcome him to the family. Thanks for coming on, David. Thank you, Paul. Great to be here. Hey, before we got into this, you know, I've been reading and following you for a while. I just wondered, how is your mother, Barbara, doing? Is she still with us? I know that's been an ongoing issue in your life, and I have lost my parents, so I know how powerful and important that is. Yeah, my my dad died when I was 33, and my mom passed away in early December this year, uh, not long after I completed the book where I write about her somewhat. And she'd been gone, you know, I know this is a familiar story for a lot of people. Um, she'd been gone mentally for a while, um, which made makes it harder in a way to get back to the essence of her. But I've, I've been trying to do that kind of consciously because she was a vibrant woman when she was uh, in her late 30s. She would dance on top of pianos and, and, and sing, and she was a great mother and uh, super generous. And so I'm trying to tunnel back through the years to, to those moments. Do we ever stop missing them? Because I still miss my parents every day. I think of my dad uh, in terms of my first book grew out of him. Um, I was, he was in hospice and he hadn't, he'd been on morphine and he hadn't said anything coherent for days. And I was sitting there writing down a description of him in my journal when he suddenly snapped alert and said his only coherent words, which were, make sure you get the facts down. And uh, as it turned out, I did. And that became my first book. Uh, my sister, meanwhile, had a career, kind of a businessy career. And she became a, a bereavement chaplain because of my dad's death. So our lives and our family really changed. And, and so I always think of it because so much grew out of that moment. Have you ever been fortunate enough to have him come back in like the dream state, but it's not a dream? Because mine actually showed up last night, not so ironically, sitting at a cafe and I sensed my dad. I looked up and he turned a corner and there he was about 50. And I said, oh, my God, so good to see you. And then we had this great chat and everything. And then I almost want to say, unfortunately, I woke up back here. Well, I have not dreamed about my mother yet. And my wife has. And I'm very jealous of her <laughs> that she gets to see my mother. And I have not yet. And I, when I think about my father, he was a businessman and he was kind of a tough guy from Worcester, Massachusetts, who always talked about the real world. Kind of, kind of, kind of gruff, and but really secretly, he was a lover of history and a history major in college, and a, and a really good writer. And for a long time, I felt when I was a young writer, felt kind of judged by him 
And it's flipped around now that he's been gone where I'm like, oh my God, he would so love to live my life as a professor and writer and thinker. And it's, it's just interesting how things evolve. And you can see the seeds of you in all of that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Both. I, I also like to get up on pianos and sing, so that's another thing. <laughs> well, we might have to wheel you out here. Did you always have this great love of nature that's in your writing? I did. Um, you know, I did, and, and we talked a little bit before we got on about Cape Cod. That was one of my first uh, nature experiences. Uh, we use the word privilege a lot these days, and my great privilege was that my father bought a little plot of land early on on Cape Cod. And my mother was driving down from Worcester, Massachusetts and saw the new highway being built and they were destroying a house from the 1700s. And she bought the bones of the house for uh, $50 and rebuilt. they rebuilt it on that place. So I started going down there and got kind of the tides inside me and the ocean and the sand and the winds. And then after college, I moved down into that house and winterized it and worked as a carpenter there and uh, and really uh, confirmed how much I loved the natural world and, and birding and, and how much it meant to me in my life. And it's continued to, which I'm very lucky to have. And then how did you evolve into this epic climate writer? Did, did Was that sort of by accident? It sounds like you just started following a trail and wow, look what happened and here I am. It was completely by accident. Um, recently, I don't know if it made the pages of the book, but recently I, I wrote a piece for Orion magazine where I said, can nature writers save the world? That's preposterous. It's a little like little like hobbits saving Middle Earth. <laughs> and so I didn't plan at all on being this thing called a nature writer. My early writing was fiction. It was a little stilted and clunky. I remember I had like a character quote the road to another character, and that was a bad sign of, of early writing. But then I wrote this memoir that I mentioned of my father's death, and there were trees and nuts and squirrels and leaves in it, and uh, I was deemed a nature writer by the critics. And then I wrote a book about Colorado and how moving west had changed my life, and once again I was called a nature writer. So my third book was called Sick of Nature. It was my rebellion against uh, being called that. But gradually, I began to accept it. And I was sent by an environmental magazine on Earth for the Natural Resource Defense Council to different places in the West, to fracking towns, to Louisiana during the BP spill. So I was still using the tools of a nature writer. I was observing, I was talking to people, I was getting their stories, I was watching the birds. But I was doing it in these places where the natural world was under assault. I was doing it uh, where there were fires going on, flash floods. And then I moved to North Carolina and I started to travel the coast with Orrin Pilkey, the Duke coastal geologist who's very controversial and predicts huge sea level rises. And so once again, I was in nature, in these natural places, but nature was changing. And so my writing changed too and became less pastoral and more kind of sharp and aggressive and also questioning what was going on. You touched on being out West. You wrote a beautiful piece where you go up to the origins of the Colorado River. 
Can you generously share some of that, what it felt like here in this now for the worldwide audience? It's one of the most beautiful things. I just thought from such humble beginnings, this river that I think supplies the water for 40 something million people in America, just the way you went up there in search of that, I thought it was, it was a great, like in search of the origins of the Nile, but also a great origin story in general, great metaphors there. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it was about a year and a couple months ago, and I, I I finished my term. I teach in the fall, and I Zoomed from Arizona the last day. And then I decided to spend my week or two in the West uh, with, I think I say in the book, I gave it the gluey uh, cohesion of theme. And the theme was follow the water. And I followed the water. Uh, luckily, I hitched a ride in a small plane over the Grand Canyon and got to look down at the Colorado uh, the same pilot generously brought me up to look at Lake Powell and um, and the river there, which, of course, is uh, Lake Powell is now operating at 24 percent, the second biggest reservoir in the country. Then I swam in the water because I wanted a little it was cold, but I wanted to have a little more direct experience of the water and wove my way up uh, to the source of the Colorado with a good old friend. Um, I did uh, for the first time in many years. Uh, nibble on a little bit of mushrooms which uh, might have uh, that he had in his truck that might have added to the beauty of the writing or maybe detracted from it i'm not sure <laughs> and and it was because of climate in a way uh, we were able to hike there without snowshoes uh, in december though this year they're getting pounded with snow at the moment but um, that was the latest first snowfall on record in colorado that year and we hiked up and like you said I think I write in the piece, so much depends on, on snowmelt, because you're thinking of water, as you said, for almost 40 million people, and you're seeing this river get more and more narrow and covered with ice, and you're thinking, oh my God, this primal natural thing, this is the source of this larger civilization down there, and the contrast was really interesting for me. And as I started to write it, another theme kind of came out which was, I'd been thinking a lot about Antarctica and the melting there. And as I read more, I had not known before that there are 400 lakes below the ice in Antarctica. And as the, um, and beneath the ice became the title of the piece, because I was hiking up and at the, um, when we got to the source, I could straddle the Colorado River and it was flowing. It was so beautiful. It was like below the ice, but there was another thing going which was I was thinking about the way we were pressed to live. You know, we, we have to, to some degree. And with climate, we completely repress. We have, you know, we, we don't like to think about it. 97% of Americans never have a conversation about it. So what had happened the morning of my hike to the Colorado is I had my mom, I'd been thinking about my mom, but not really thinking about her because it was so tragic that I'd repressed it much like we repressed climate. and then. Because I was in Colorado where I used to live, I put on John Denver and listened to Rocky Mountain High. And then the 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 music kept playing through sunshine on your shoulder on my shoulders, et cetera. But it got to Annie's song, which was my mother's favorite song. And all of a sudden, uh, I hadn't cried once while she was dealing with Parkinson's. And I mean, I'd cried maybe once, but um, I pulled over on the side of the road and bawled and had this old school 
kind of uh, catharsis for half an hour. Just, you know, it all hit me at once. And I thought how that's very similar to what we're doing on a larger scale with climate, the way we've, we've repressed this thing, this horrible thing. And I understand why we don't think about it. I'm not being critical, but it's there. You know, it's beneath the ice. Oh, that's beautiful. And you touched on something that's important, too. There's all this unspoken grief, like so many of us know, even the people that don't talk about it. And there was that recent study of how unhappy children and teenagers are, especially younger women and younger girls. And of course, I've seen these articles by white guys going, I don't get it. The market's up, you know, strong return. Right. And I, I'm like, you're missing the forest for the trees, the elephant in the room. There's this national grief. And of course, it has to do with fascism and lack of opportunity. But I think at its core, as primal creatures, we know that extinction is howling out there at night. We hear it and we're not doing anything about it. Don't you think there's the grieving? There's this grief that's happening. I sometimes want to just weep for the beauty of it all and also for the tragedy of it all. Yeah. I think we sense it the way we sense the weather. And um, we don't do it in a worded way. Um, that's one of the reasons I make my daughter a part of the book is uh, my daughter Hadley, who's a freshman at NYU right now, and actually taking a course in, uh, in climate uh, politics right now and has done stuff with Sunrise and other uh, environmental groups. She said to me, doom is normal. It, it, she does think about it and, and it, it occupies her headspace in the way it doesn't mind. And uh, it's really interesting. And I, I think when people say to me, oh, you know, or, or when they when they discount climate and I wanna give some evidence, I say, look at my daughter's high school years. Uh, freshman year, uh, no school in fall because the play, her high school became a shelter for Hurricane Florence. Spring that year, her one normal term, uh, another hurricane uh, came the next fall and the next spring was COVID. So she didn't, she went through four years of high school and had one, um, you know, one normal term. So to her, this is, a, and to her peers, it's a much more real thing. And uh, they, they feel it more acutely, I think. Um, but then they were pressed too, because she's a college kid, right? She wants to enjoy life and, and, and not think about it. So it's a, it's a tough balance for sure. I love the premise, too, of you asking these climate scientists, these people, what's the world going to look like when Hadley's 60 or 62 or in 2060? And, of course, no one can really answer that question. No one can answer it, right. I mean, the short answer is not good. <laughs> As of today, if you were brutally honest, gun to the head, and you had to at least make a statement, where is this whole thing headed in your heart, in your mind, and what you know already? It's funny because uh, you remember David Wallace Wells' book, The Uninhabitable Earth. Uh, he got some flack because he went, you know, full dire mode, apocalyptic. And then he's kind of backed down. I, there was a New York Times Magazine piece where there's this new kind of, oh, it's not going to be that bad um, vibe in, in some of the new writing. I think it's going to be pretty damn bad uh, because... I think it's already bad in ways we don't acknowledge. As I say in the book, I live on the hurricane coast, uh, the Atlantic and, and Southern North Carolina. 
and I spent my summers traveling in the West and without trying hard at all, the summer of the book, I, I, in just a short couple months span, I witnessed two major fires, a flash flood. Uh, then I went to a student's wedding that fall and Ida had just ripped through Louisiana. So these things are already happening and there already are, and I'm just talking about the United States, which is small potatoes in some ways. Um, and there already are climate refugees. The people who left after Katrina in New Orleans fled to Houston until the huge Houston uh, storm started coming in. So this is already happening. I think it's going to intensify. Uh, some wealthy people might be able to isolate themselves, but you know we'll be paying for water. Uh, we'll be uh, taps might not run uh, if the seas rise anywhere near what some of the more dire predictions are. Uh, this, where I live right now, I, I, I've watched the water rise in my backyard. Um, it, it's going to be permeated with, with water and, and heavy rains. And this is all talking about the world like it ends in 2100, right? Or 2100. Uh, you know, we say, oh, in 50 years, or even my book, it's like, you know, in Hadley 60. But there are generations beyond that. And we're, we're, we're going on a course where a very, particularly with the oceans, as they heat up, they're on about a 30-year flywheel. So, you know, they turn like a huge tanker, you know. Um, so these things have to be done now. Um, am I confident they're going to be done now? Gun to my head? No, I'm not. And I don't, um, I don't feel like that's the purpose of my book either. I don't want a book. I kind of, I kind of somewhat mock what I call the tropes of hope. That we all, you know, if you see a news story on TV, they'll say this bad stuff, and then they'll say, however, John John Edwards is planting a tree in, you know, the corner of his yard, and then see you later. Um, or, um, so I, I don't buy into that, and I don't buy into the, the doom books completely either. Um, so I feel like my purpose is really just to write the way, uh, you know, to write literature about it. So if I have any takeaway at all, and I'm not a big takeaway person, it's trying to like permeate our thinking, not in a take action sort of way, but in a some degree of awareness. Um, and and I, I went off on a little tangent there. I apologize, Paul, but I just I, I I'm really still thinking this through. You know what what um, like if I'm writing a novel, I don't say, well, I hope when these people finish the novel, they go do this and that. Um, so it's more like that, um, if that makes sense. I feel like that was pretty inarticulate. <laughs> so. Actually, quite the opposite. The show is based on tangents. So if you're tangenting, you're right in the wheelhouse of what matters most. 1,100 shows of, or more of massive amounts of tangents. You want to be on a tangent <laughs> when you're on this show. Especially, that was a good one. That was, if you have a soundbite for this, you're wrong. We don't know. It's too big. What happens if the Gulf Stream collapses or is altered? We're seeing the jet stream now going as low as almost the equator. It's in every facet. The glacier's melting faster. The ice sheet this, that. Flood here. No food there. Drought there. Oh, look. Pakistan's underwater. So is New Zealand. They got a year's worth of rain in three days. Oh, the ground can't deal with that. Oh, look. It's 
50 degrees above normal in the North Pole and the South Pole. And look, oh, great, the shipping lanes are open. We can go for more oil. And it's like the drug addict, the crack addict who can't stop. The momentum is monumental. There's a very compassionate part of me that just sees that this species crawls out of the swamp and constructs this amazing thing, but somehow it found out late in the game that what they built the whole thing on is going to cause its own extinction. And then its brain isn't really designed to deal with that kind of problem either. It can run from a fire or a tiger, but it doesn't do well with these bigger existential questions. And then there's a whole bunch of people that figured out they can make trillions of dollars lying to the people and exploiting the end of days. And maybe they're in denial too. And then voila, you have what we see now. And that is not the recipe for a solution to a major predicament. And physics does not give a fuck what you think. It doesn't care what TV station news you watch, what you believe, or if you think Jesus is good or whatever, you're going to hit the ground at the same rate as the other object that has no beliefs. It's the same. And that's kind of where we find ourselves. It's like you and I woke up on the Titanic. We were transported back in time and everyone thinks we're lunatics for saying everyone should slow down. We're going to sink. Well, we had a good uh, champagne parties for a while there before we realized we were going to hit the icebergs. Right. And then we decide to be kind. And speaking of speaking of icebergs, I, you know, I think I said at one point in the book, uh, we've it's like we've reached an agreement. The ice caps um, are ignoring us, and we're ignoring them. You know, <laughs> um, there's a. I, I I wonder if you you might have read the Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, it's a big cli-fi book. I found that really helpful. Um, it it is pervasively gloomy and doom-ridden uh, for about 40, 50 years out from now. And then there are little sprigs of hope, which I said I was against, but of course, I'm not really against. I would love nothing more than when my daughter's my age for her not to be living in the, in the scary world we're describing. But the interesting thing for me is the hope comes about or the turnaround starts to come about from a variety of uh, of sources, uh, the politicians, of course, do their politicking, and the um, and the lawyers do their litigating, and the monkey wrenchers do their monkey wrenching, um, and so on. And there's um, and and there's a and and there is an element of monkey wrenching where uh, these terrorists of the future are trying to shut down fossil fuels completely, but there's also a um, uh, E.O. Wilson's kind of half birth or what. It's called rewilding, uh, starts to be embraced. And there are areas like Y2Y, the Yellowstone to Yukon, where that's already occurring, where people are trying to make pathways and connect parks. Um, and, uh, you know, for migratory, for, for big carnivores. And so there's this little sense of a, a comeback. Now, is that just a fairy tale? I don't know. Uh, but I what I liked about it was the answer wasn't just buy your electric car. It was more eclectic and more varied um, the, the ways to fight back. Um, I, you know, it's funny because one of the things I write about in the book is I don't have the activist gene that my daughter has. She'll get up and, you know, she is in front of 
um, city hall here and and is, is a fighter and I'm more of a writer and uh, sometimes I I self-castigate about that because I'm like look what's going on you know like you said we're on the Titanic and I'm not uh, but we all I guess what the ministry for the future did for me is it made me say we all have our skill set and um, some awakening to the fact that this is coming forward um, and and how you individually might be able to respond um, I don't want to sound naive uh, is is all we got really well, and you have to know your lane. I don't want to, like we were talking about technical before we came on. That's not going to be my lane. I, I, yeah. So I have this show. And so I have all these people like you on and all these great scientists. And for those who've been writing in, Catherine Aho from NASA is coming back on. She's one of the leading, if not leading climate scientists. Michael Mann's been on a number of times. We keep doing the books. That's our buffet. We put it out there. We're not evangelical. We're not knocking on doors yet. I don't think we would anyway. Yeah, I'm a big Michael Band fan. Yeah, he's fabulous and he's funny. Uh, one thing, too, that I always keep trying to say, because we have the Earth's PR person right here at the table, and the Earth's going to be fine. And it's going to recreate infinite species like it has before. It's billions of years old. A mammal that thinks it looks like God is not the big deal it, it is in an infinite universe. And yeah, it's a sacrilege to be given everything, to be placed in the Garden of Eden and all of this, and then let the narcissistic, egoic elements of our personality and sociopathic people run our species into the ground. But so what? That's an experiment. I know that might sound callous, but if that's what happens, then give the Earth a million years to yawn, and I think we'll go on. And I do think there will be some bipeds roaming around. I think the indigenous will probably be able to survive better than the Wall Street types or me. But I was temporary anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, uh, as you know, like a large part later in the book that takes place in Bears Ears and around uh, Navajo land in, in Arizona and, and uh, Utah. And for me, that's been a real uh, great thing that's happened uh, in the last few years, spending a lot of my time out there. And of course, the old stories and the indigenous stories uh, uh, really go well with the idea, again, not a solution, but um, an alternative way of being that, uh, that is, has, has been really important to me in the last few years. And, and watching Bears Ears uh, be put aside first by Obama, taken away by Trump, and returned by Biden. Uh, these uh, ha has been just fascinating in terms of how we deal with what is essentially the same land being designated different things. And uh, it, out of that, in a, I, were, I had a Navajo elder say to me, thank God for Trump, because everyone rallied around you know, at that moment and, and fought back in a way that hadn't happened before. So it's it's pretty fascinating. Um, and in that in an area like that, the land is already the future. Um, it's so arid, uh, devoid of water. And a lot of people don't have running water that you can get a taste of what is predicted will be happening, particularly in the West, where, you know, I've written a book about Wallace Stegner, and as he said, aridity defines the region. 
already, right? And the and the West is a place of extremes to start with, uh, and and now those extremes are being exaggerated. Uh, not just extreme heat, but extreme dryness and moisture being sucked out of things um, make it so susceptible. And we know that. I mean, we all see the fires on the news, but there's there's larger issues too, from from beetle kill to just the, the historic drought, which is now surpassing the great drought. Well, the whole thing's an artificial construct. And so anything that's artificial is going to be very short-lived. Right. Well, think of what we were saying about the Colorado River, which isn't artificial, but runs through there and is partitioned off to the various states. And the states are, are you know, the, the allotments are being reduced. and the laws around the Colorado that have sprung up, uh, it's very artificial what's happened with it, but it begins as this kind of primal, simple thing. David, what's it like to go to these places firsthand and see the devastation, stand on the ground, see the the ruins or the oil spill or the burned out forest, you name it. What's it like to be not see it through a screen or read about it? But to have your boots on the ground and to really have it be such a visceral experience, how has that changed you? A, a perverse answer would be fun. <laughs> you know, because uh, there's this aspect of it where you're in beautiful places and you're meeting really interesting people. And of course, you're seeing the devastation and have empathy for that. But there's an, it's a mixed up thing. Uh, the, the first real experience like this. I mean, I'd done smaller things, but I was um, I was at a party here in Wilmington and the writer John Jeremiah Sullivan was at the party and the oil spill, it must have been 2011, the BP oil spill had just happened. And he said to me, you should be down there. You, know, you should be reporting on this uh, at the front, basically. And I thought about it and I said, yeah, he's right. Never had done anything like that. So I talked to my wife the next day, and the day after I got in the car and drove, and everybody was saying uh, they won't. No one's going to talk to you. They're you know they're going to guard the beaches, and it was totally the opposite. Everybody I saw was wanted to tell their stories, and uh, and I went down and stayed in this lodge uh, of this big conservative uh, fishing guide named Brian Lambert who we became friends and he would joke and tease me and call Obama, my president, your president, he would say, uh, but the first night nobody was in the lodge because oil was everywhere. There was no fishing going on. And the, but there was one little group of people across the way and they looked more like ultimate Frisbee players than uh, fishermen. And I walked over and it was the Cousteau film team. And they, we had a couple beers and they said, do you want to come in a helicopter out to the rig and see the spill tomorrow? And I was like, sure. Um, and that was the beginning of a kind of Alice in Wonderland experience of just things like that kept happening because I was throwing myself into it. So personally, there's an aspect of engagement. But of course, you never forget that what you're dealing with is people's livelihoods being destroyed and, and, and often their houses being destroyed. And, and you're trying to tell that story, but it is complicated and, and messy. And I try to make that 
the case of my writing. Um, for instance, another example is hurricanes are exciting. Uh, people feel that way, even people who are boarding up their houses to, I mean, we here are every summer, we get, we're ready for hurricane season. We're anxious. Um, and it's interesting to see in the West how fire season has the same kind of parallel feeling. But we're anxious, we're frightened, we're worried. We're also a little excited uh, at times when the winds and the storms uh, come up. So, you know, I'm just trying to, uh, we mentioned the word uncertainty before, and I said uncertainty is not just my subject matter and my theme, it's my working method. So I try to be honest about what's going on, and a lot of it is tragic, and a lot of it is sympathizing with the tragic, but there's also, it's it's kind of adventurous, too, to be, to be there and talking to people and be part of it, immersed in it. Why do you feel the mainstream media refuses to cover all of this? I think it's a tough one. I think they, you know, they're trying to sell. I mean, you know, I, I watch MSNBC, but so clearly Trump and anti-Trump is the catnip, right? I mean, that's, uh, and, and I'm susceptible too. I'm like, what's the Trump news today? You know, what did he do now? Um, and they are looking at ratings and frankly, it gets boring when you're um, detailing the end of the world, um, and um, and they cover the hurricanes, you know, in great detail because that's um, you know, they're they're standing out there in the storm, and no one else should be standing out here and all that. Um, but I think it's just a it's a storytelling challenge. I mean, that's part of what my book is about, and uh, and it's a people's interest. You know, they're they're, they're coming at it from their their need to uh, succeed, which means having more viewers. And while a hurricane, because it's acute, can capture the imagination, this longer hurricane that's going to be the next 50 years isn't as engrossing a story for people. And it's hard to it's hard to sell a bunch of bullshit trinkets and futures and pharmaceuticals and a new car and also a mutual fund when you're kind of giving people the news that they might not have a civilization within 10 years kind of runs counterculture to their counter. The message is, Hey, you're doomed. You know, are you going to get your good kid into college or what's your 20 year plan? It, it won't work. So they instead go with fantasy and hopium. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I've circled back to embracing so-called nature writing. Uh, one of my favorite Thoreau quotes is the life that men praise and call successful is but one kind. And kind of starting to see kind of uh, through, I wouldn't call it countercultural, but alternative ways of seeing the world. And one of the ways I see it and try to see it is in a more primal manner, like uh, wind, earth, water, fire. And for instance, what we just said earlier about the Colorado River is also true here in my backyard, where I can see I love being able to look out the window and see, you know, if it's high or low tide, but I also see the water encroaching on me here. Or when I, I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina, so if I fly somewhere, of course I'm culpable um, by flying, I see how low this town is and how high the water is. It's like almost permeating, so you imagine a storm surge um, could be that. And since you like tangents, when I said that about flying, 
one of my favorite lines in the last few years is I, I went down the Charles River, kind of an epic, mock epic trip with Dan Driscoll, who's the Boston environmentalist who um, greened the Charles. He basically put in bike paths so we could Trojan horse in native plantings along the Charles. So we went down there and he had a great line where he said, um, we're all hypocrites. We're all, you know, we all are hypocrites. And sometimes we have that kind of get us off the hook because we say, I drive, I fly, what can I do? And then he said, but we need more hypocrites who fight, who embrace their, you know, hypocrisy, but still, because uh, you know, that's the big knock, you know, the conservative oil company knock is like, oh, you drive and fly and you have a house too. And he said, no, we need, we need more hypocrites who fight. And I love that, the fighting hypocrites. It sounds like a high school mascot or something. And we need to design an alternative system while we dismantle this one. If that's the way out, I mean, that's like you wouldn't turn a domesticated animal dog loose in the forest and say, and now you're free, find yourself food. He would die or she would die or be eaten. So you, that's, you, you need to be smart and have a consciousness about it. There is a life beyond doom though. And there's even a great website beyond doom. I've been listening to those guys talk about it that, you, regardless of the outcome, I keep saying this to myself inside and outside. And when I have these beautiful talks like this with you and my friends and the people that need to talk about it, is that regardless of outcome, we could still live so beautifully in the now. We, the earth is magnificent. Nature is everywhere. We could still be kind and compassionate. The future, which is out of our control, shouldn't influence how we behave and how we live and how loving we can be, in my opinion. Be that anyway. Maybe it'll work out. Maybe it won't. It doesn't look like it's going to work out based on physics, like we said. But either way, you can be beautiful, live beautifully, and create a difference now. I love that. And I was, since you've talked with Michael Mann recently, um, what's his uh, level of hopefulness? Uh, what's his doom quotient? On the air or off the air? Yeah. Okay. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. I'll leave it on. But here's his thing. He says, and so they all say this too. And Catherine was talking about this off the air too, that people deny, deny, and then jump to doom and it's futile. That that will ensure that we're doomed. So don't go to doom, especially you. They were giving me some, you know, or anybody like you or all of us. Don't go to doom. Become active and find your lane, find your voice, find your niche, find your tribe. And do something, and here's a great adjunct to that. If you're doing anything, you're going to feel a lot better. If you go nihilistic and go into the fetal position in a dark room, you're going to feel like shit. Or if you hang yourself, we've lost you. So get involved. Either way, you're going to feel better, and don't go right to doom, because then we ensure doom. So that's that's what they all say, and I think that's a great philosophy and a great uh, mindset and a great great path to take well you know the years ago the book i mentioned uh it's called my green manifesto and i wrote it about um i don't know 15 years ago maybe maybe less than that uh and that's the trip with dan Driscoll down the charles river and the reason the charles was perfect is it was a limited wild obviously it's you know heading into a million many millions of people city right and but there were still great moments of great blue herons and 
glimpses of wildness, if not wilderness. And uh, the whole book was based on what you just described, uh, avoiding the over-the-top shrill doomsaying that leads to us basically doing what you said, curling into kind of a mental fetal position and doing nothing. So in a way, it's funny. I, I always had a big uh, chip on my shoulder about books that were, it, though I love, I, weirdly, Bill McKibben was my editor at the Harvard Crimson. In, I was a political cartoonist and he was my editor in college. I love the end of nature, but I do overall have a problem with the end of, the doom of, the gloom. And so it's kind of funny that I finally come around to the traveler's guide to the end of the world. Uh, but hopefully it is not, though it's bringing doom up, Hopefully it's not doom-laden and uh, doom-permeated. No, and I just love the writing, and it makes you feel and think. And I feel like if we're here, keep it as real as possible. Don't numb out. Don't look away. Come and dive in. Feel everything. That's why you're, I think, the reason why you incarnated. What would be the point if you're just going to come here and bypass? What are your own feelings on your mortality and your inevitable end? Well, it's interesting. I, I'm just writing about that right now. I'm a cartoonist also, and I have a journal called Ecotone, which I founded. And now Annalena Phillips-Bell is the editor now. And every every issue I write in a kind of introductory essay, called out, it's called Out of Place, which is obviously a pun. I'm out of place being down here in North Carolina, but I also come out of place. That's where my origins are. It's a place person as as most of us are um, and so this time i'm doing a cartoon called the dead uh, writer society because uh, i've had so many writer friends die in the last three years not of covid but of, and so i've been thinking a lot about it when i was a kid around 10 i had this obsession that i called the feeling which was this kind of mental staircase i walked up or down to get to the idea that everything is nothing and it Took hold in my head for for a couple of years, and then it kind of faded away. But I often think that the creativity, the book writing, the cartooning, was a response to nothingness. I would make something out of nothing, right? And in a somewhat hyperactive way, really, because I'm pretty prolific. And um, so I feel like there's a little, you know, there's a little desperation with that. Nobody wants to be nothing. And I, it sounds like you've reached um, an acceptance that I hope to reach. And I um, certainly am a lot calmer about my end at this point. Uh, but I'm st still trying to still trying to fill up the nothing for a little while until I, until I do. I mean, I'm a, I'm a meditator now. And, um, you know, and I think about this stuff philosophically. But I also, at core, am an artist or writer. And, and so... Um, every day starts with, with trying to create. Well, meditation changed everything for me years ago. Otherwise, yeah, my mind needed to be beaten with a stick and couldn't kill it. Now I can sleep or if it wakes me up in the middle of the night, I have all these tools where it's like, catch me after the first espresso and we'll talk about that. Yeah, but not now at 3 a.m. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, oddly, way back when, when that feeling happened, um, and I was 10 or 11 years old, I ended up talking to a psychiatrist and he taught me to uh, hypnotize myself, which was akin to meditation. Then, then 
flash flash, flash forward uh, you know a decade and a half and at 30 I had testicular cancer in Worcester Massachusetts and my weirdly my rehab person was John Kabat-Zinn who was uh, who you know so once again I was meditating so I've always done it but it's only in the last five years where I have a deeper practice of it and it's, it is really uh, hugely helpful in terms of calm and steadiness though I argue against calm in my book right I say we all we all have our coffee cups that say you know stay calm on them and maybe we need to get a little more freaked out so we we do stuff <laughs> well that's more that we need to be enlightened hypocrites thing yes yeah before I let you go I just had a it's all spontaneous obviously there's no script here let's put you in a time capsule let's say you're get, leaving a message that Hadley's going to find. You're gone. Let's say it's 30 years from now. What would you want her to know uh, when she opened this up and found it? What, what message would you give to her about life, moving forward, what you tried to do, et cetera, whatever you feel in your heart? Well, let me give that message a title, and I'm going to choose the title, What Matters Most. <laughs> and I would say what matters most to me what um, is, of course, people, that's a given, and your, your tribe, as you called it, but also for me, the uniting of uh, creativity, and she's actually in school at the um, Tisch School at NYU in, in film, the linking of creativity um, to good work. I I worked not very well, but I worked as a carpenter for a while, and I found that I didn't like the work, but I like problem solving. And so much of my time at my desk every morning is, is problem solving, and I find myself so absorbed in it. So I would hope that she could find some solace in doing that. Because I know who she is, I hope she could take that those same tools and apply them to the world. She's interested in politics. She's interested in, as I said, she has a gene I don't have. So I would encourage her to fight for those things as well in the external world, but always have what Montaigne called your back shop, uh, the, your private place you can go to that's apart from the tumultuous world where you can kind of um, speak to yourself and have kind of solace there. That would be a tangent also. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.